afraid of a global nuclear disaster? Or the likes of a Star Wars cosmic conflict? Are we on a countdown to the Battle of Armageddon? What does the future hold for our world? Have you tried to understand the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, only to be confused by all the symbols? These and many other amazing questions will be answered through this prophecy seminar. Yes, you can understand the books of Daniel and Revelation, and in the process, get to know God in a deeper way. Welcome to Prophecy Seminar, the book of Daniel. Here is your host, Pastor David Price. Well, good evening, friends. I'd like to welcome you to our Daniel and Revelation Prophecy Seminar. We are studying tonight Lesson 19. If you are watching on YouTube, you have the ability um, to download the lessons now in the description section under the heading and uh, follow along with us as well. If you don't have access to the lesson, you can still follow along because everything will be on the screen. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, tonight we thank you for an opportunity to open your word in a powerful way. Father, this is a interesting subject and we would need lots of wisdom and understanding. Give us heaven's view, heaven's perspective of this amazing topic through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends, so we are in lesson 19, the small test with big results, and I'm starting at the top of page two. Please have a look on the screen. In our study of the book of Daniel, we have discovered that Daniel and his friends faced test after test. In every instance, they stood true to God. And back in lesson three, we briefly examined the initial test that Daniel and his friends faced as it was revealed in Daniel chapter one. The fact that they stood true to principle in that seemingly easy test when all the other Hebrews compromised enabled them to stand faithful to God on all subsequent tests. We have also learned in this prophecy seminar series that the stories of the book of Daniel illustrate the predictions of the prophecies. We have seen that the prophecies actually predict that the people of God will go through a crisis at the close of human history. And we believe that is on now. The only ones who stood firm for truth in Daniel's day were those who passed the diet test back in Daniel chapter one. Could it be that the ones who will stand firm for God in the last days of earth's history are those who likewise pass a similar test? So friends, the lessons we're learning tonight is that small tests passed with God's grace, mercy and deliverance lead to big tests that are passed with God's mercy, grace and deliverance. There's good news. In this lesson, Prophecy Lesson 19, we wish to re-examine Daniel 1 to study in greater detail the test that Daniel faced and then look at its implications for our day. Tonight in our theme questions, we have three. What is the biblical Genesis diet? Why does God forbid certain types of food and drugs? 
And why is it important to guard the mind and body against damage from unclean foods and harmful drugs? That's our topic tonight. So thank you for joining me. We are in lesson 19, the small test with big results. You know, friends, in terms of diet, foods and appetite, this would have to be one of the most controversial areas um, that we could study. And I'm just so glad tonight that we're going to find out what Daniel eats. We're going to find out what Daniel doesn't eat. We're going to find out what he was commanded to eat. And we're going to find out the reasons why he chose to follow God's word. May God bless us all as we open his precious word tonight. Our first heading is number one. It's Daniel and his friends face the test. Join me in question one. What did the king allow Daniel and his friends to eat? Now we are going back after a long time away to Daniel chapter one, verse five. So you remember we are in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them so that at the end of the time they might serve before the king. What did the king allow Daniel and his friends to eat? A daily provision of the king's delicacies. The King James translates it, the king's meat and also of the wine which he drank. Daniel and his friends were offered the best that Babylon had. However, what the world thinks is good many times is not the best. God had something better for his children, and Daniel and his friends knew that. Question two, what decision did Daniel make regarding the king's wine and the king's food? We go to Daniel chapter uh, 1 and verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he, Daniel, might not defile himself. You know, friends, Daniel made a choice in his heart, a choice to honor God to not ceremonially defile himself with foods that God's word did not recommend and did not uh, approve. And so this is also a spiritual decision to not defile himself with the king's meats nor with the king's wine. Daniel and his friends knew that if they were going to remain true to God in this heathen court, they must not weaken their minds by eating the rich food and drinking the wine of the king. They realize they must partake only of simple, nutritious food that would keep their minds pure and clear. Just want to give you some extra material. Let's have a look at three main issues that are going on. Why can't Daniel eat the food on the king's table? The first part of three main issues going on behind his refusal to defile himself is that the meat on the table is judged unclean according to the Levitical kosher laws in Leviticus 3.17. And that is the meat had to be especially drained so the blood was removed from it. Remember in Genesis 9.6 that blood is sacred. Blood represents life and later would represent the life of the Son of God. 
A second reason is that the food had previously been sacrificed to the Babylonian gods as an act of worship, which it then was supposed to strengthen and bless all those who ate the food. And this leads to point number three. This is a huge problem because eating the king's food is an act of worship of the Babylonian king and of his gods and causes one to enter into the Nebuchadnezzar cult. It's the entryway into worshipping the king who was a god. God's word forbids in commandment one, worshipping any other god and in commandment two, to bow down and worship idols and images. And so you can see the dilemma that Daniel was facing. What is the fourth issue here? Daniel was directly responding to the king's attempt to force him, to coerce him, to make him join in the Babylonian culture. To preserve his identity, the exiled Daniel chooses to eat and drink differently. Daniel asks for vegetables and water because Daniel cannot control his food sources. So he wisely chooses to be a vegetarian. The safest way was to keep kosher and also was the most explicit testimony to his faith in the God of creation. So friends, that just gives us the background to the dilemma that Daniel faced. Remember, to refuse to eat at the king's table was to invite a death decree. Question three, what was the result of Daniel and his friends making this decision? Where did it end up? We go in Daniel 1 verse 20. Now at the end of the days when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hanariah, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. Notice there Daniel is using their Hebrew, their biblical names. He's not using their Babylonian names. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them how many times better? Yeah, isn't that interesting? Ten is a significant number in scripture, ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. So what's the result of Daniel making a stand of purposing, choosing in his heart not to defile himself? He comes through this with God's help on a very special God-approved biblical diet to be 10 times better. And friends, we need to remind each other tonight that with God, whatever decision we make for him and with him approved by his word, people are always better off. Question four, since Daniel and his friends had passed the diet test, what other tests were they now able to pass? So this first test is foundational to the tests that were to come. Most people fail the diet test. Most people are unwilling to give up their favorite foods. Most people are unwilling to make changes in what they eat. I think most of us say, well, this is all I've got. I'm in this situation, I'm confined, so I'm going to eat this, I'm going to eat that. Question four, since Daniel and his friends had passed the diet test, what other tests were they now able to pass? We dive into now the chapter of the fiery furnace and Nebuchadnezzar has threatened Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego with flames and this is their answer. Daniel 3.17, 
If that is the case, O King Nebuchadnezzar, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O King. Friends, if you are struggling with your faith in God, you've got to talk faith, you've got to act faith, you've got to live faith in order to have an increase of faith that you might become the sons and daughters of God. What do you say? Friends, they are confident that not only is God able to deliver them, but he will deliver them. The boys are actually thinking that if God chooses not to deliver them in a miraculous way, that they will be delivered from the second death. After they are resurrected, they will never go into the lake of fire and they will never perish for eternity. Therefore, they rest and trust with this amazing faith in God. But if not, O King, let it be known to you that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which you have set up. Friends, have you got a faith like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego? It's absolutely amazing. So here is the second test they pass. The three Hebrews refuse to worship the golden image. They refuse to bow down. Let's have a look at 4b. What other tests were they now able to pass? We jump now into Daniel 6, which is the chapter of Daniel in the lion's den. Verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, this is the laws of the Medes and Persian, who are now from Babylonian into the Medo-Persian kingdom. And in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, Daniel kneels down on his knees and three times that day prays and gives thanks before his God, as was his custom or habit since early days. Friends, the death decree was that you'll be killed if you do not, if you choose to worship any other God, but the God who is the king of the land. Then these men, the Dibba um, court attendants and officers assembled and found Daniel praying. He didn't hide, did he? And making supplication. He was making his requests before God. Friends, I think Daniel has given us a worthy example that he continued to pray to his God as he did before. So having passed the diet test, Daniel and his friends were able to pass the image test. Remember, Daniel was not there. And the test that prohibited prayer to God. And of course, the three boys are not mentioned in Daniel chapter six. Friends, I'm going to pause a moment here because I think what we're reading has a huge impact on what we're facing right now. There's three tests coming and some of them have started right now for end time Christians. When we think about Daniel 1 and the diet test, when we think about what we're eating, when we think what we are putting into our bodies, whether it's healthy, whether it is safe, whether it is going to benefit us long term, then these boys turned away from false worship. They were not going to worship the king, Nebuchadnezzar, nor the gods of Babylon. They were choosing to make God supreme in their lives.
In Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego flatly refuse, but respectfully refuse to worship the golden image because it represents false worship. And they are only going to serve the God of heaven, the God of Israel. And so they make that decision that God can deliver them. They believe God will deliver them. But if not, O king, we will not bow down and worship your golden image. Then in Daniel 6, there's the prayer test, the open worship test, where Daniel throws the windows open and prays towards Jerusalem. He knows he's been watched. He knows he is going to be betrayed, but his courage is amazing. And so the prayer test leads to the, uh, the law being enforced to stop true worship. What does that have to do with us today? Well, I believe that soon there will be a test that comes to us on planet Earth. And I think in Daniel 1 and Daniel 3, this prefigures and symbolizes a time when most of the Earth will be asked to keep the first day of the week as a worship day in the context of possibly an environmental day or a green Sunday. And then in point three, I think there's a time coming when true believers will not be allowed to worship on the biblical day of rest, which is the seventh day of the week. Friends, if you're faithful to God, you will come through these tests with flying colours. Our next heading is the diet test in Daniel. It's our second heading tonight. Question five, what two things did Daniel refuse to partake of that were on the king's table? And Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested to the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Friends, the word delicacies there is uh, best interpreted by Wikipedia. It comes from the German word um, which, from which we get delicatessen, but in most of Australia, delicatessen retains the standard European meaning and is not just a milk bar, but both formats offer a range of cured meats, sausages, pickled vegetables, dips, breads, and olives. So this is referring to the king's meats on the table and also the king's wine. And I think that's very, very clear. Why did Daniel not partake of the king's wine? I think we understand why he didn't drink of, why he didn't eat of the meat, but why would he not take the king's wine? A lot of people would not understand that. So let's go back to find out what God's word teaches in Proverbs 21. This is written by Solomon. We know Solomon was an expert in wine. We know he's an expert in women, a little too expert, I think, and an expert in song. And so here is his view and his judgment of wine. Solomon writes, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. So friends, he tells us that wine is deceitful and that it has the ability to deceive us and turn us into fools. Daniel knew that he could not think clearly if his mind would become clouded because of alcohol. Those who benumb the mind with alcohol will never be able to pass the severe tests that are coming. That's why Daniel would not defile himself with the king's wine. So we're going to ask here, if wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging, what could strong drink stand for? The New International Version says that 
wine is a mocker and beer is a brawler. Is there anyone who wouldn't agree that beer and drinking beer often leads to fights and brawls and melees and people getting injured? I think that's a really wise point. And then the Living Bible says that wine can give false courage because it deceives. It says hard liquor, and that involves spirits, doesn't it, can lead to brawls. What fools men are to let it master them, making them reel drunkenly down the street. Friends, I'm going to ask the question now, does the Bible promote the drinking of alcohol? Most Christians today in modern society would say yes, but I'm going to give you a different point of view. And I hope that you're not shocked. In Proverbs 23, 31, Solomon gives us this. He says, do not look on the wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. Solomon tells us not to be around or near alcohol as it moves around in the glass like a serpent. He says, don't even look at it. How do you drink alcohol if you're not allowed to look at it? Do you do it with the blindfold on? Friends, the Bible teaches prohibition. You've got to remember with wine in the Bible, it's a generic word like food. And it's only the context that actually explains which way it's going. Wine can be obviously fermented grape juice and can be alcoholic and intoxicating. It can also stand for the pure blood of the grape and be unfermented and be pure. So it's interesting that you need to check out the context of wine in the Bible. Well, here we're going to find out that um, Solomon is going to get into trouble with his mum. Proverbs 31 verse 4, what are kings and princes not to drink? It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink. Well, the Jewish legend identifies this person, Lemuel, as Solomon, and he's taking advice from his mother, Bathsheba. And she's telling the king, you know, Solomon, it's not a good look, son, Lemuel. It's not a good look for the king to be tipsy, for the king to be drunk. And so wine and intoxicating drink was not to be used by kings, nor to be used by princes, because it would affect them in what way? Question eight, what happens when kings and princes drink wine and strong drink? No surprises. Proverbs 31 verse five. And so the next verse tells us the answer, doesn't it? Lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. The poor always suffer when leaders are drunk and disorderly. So when kings and princes drink wine and strong drink, they forget the law and they pervert the judgment. They forget God's law. They forget man's law. Imagine you're going to court and you're trying to get your license back and your lawyer says, this is not a good day. The judge has tied one on last night. He's got a hangover and he's really in a bad mood. So hang on to your seatbelt. That would be distressing. Question nine, we're at the bottom of page three. Who are the kings in the New Testament? Revelation 1, 5 and 6. So we're looking at Solomon as a king. He was not to be drinking. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Who are the kings in the New Testament? 
It's amazing, isn't it, that God is going to make his people into kings. The Bible indicates that kings should not partake of wine and strong drink because it perverts their judgment and leads them to forget the law of God. The book of Revelation makes it clear that every Christian has been made a king unto God through our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is God's purpose today that Christians who are kings not partake of wine and strong drink. I'm going to pause here and give you some extra material. So the problem with what I'm sharing with you tonight would be some would say, but Jesus Christ took alcohol. So let's find out if Jesus was a drinker of intoxicating drink. We go to John 19, 28, 29. Jesus is hanging on the cross in excruciating pain. In 28, Jesus said, I thirst, the raging thirst of the crucifixion with no water, an all-night trial. He's been flogged, 40 tails uh, and lashes, and now he's dehydrated in the sun. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine. They put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. So people say, there we go, Jesus drank it. What's the truth? Let's go to Mark 15 and verse 23. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh. Myrrh was a drug to deaden the sense of pain. And it says, but he did not take it. The King James Version is even clearer. It says he received it not. So I'd like to remind you that here in Jesus' greatest hour of pain, he does not partake of the alcohol. Why is that? I'd like to read to you a quote from an amazing book called Desire of Ages. To those who suffered death by the cross, it was permitted to give a stupefying potion to deaden the sense of pain. This was offered to Jesus, but when he had tasted it, he refused it. He would receive nothing that could be cloud his mind. His faith must keep fast hold upon God. This was his only strength. To be cloudy senses would give Satan an advantage. So friends, in Jesus' greatest hour of need, when you and I would be begging for Panadol, Codeine, children's Panadol, or any drug, Jesus says no. And I think often, almost in every instance, we should say no to alcohol. I've got a program called The Christian, the Bible, and Alcohol. And in this study, I talked about the wedding at Canaan because people then say, well, remember Jesus turned the water into wine, so therefore he drank wine. Friends, the wine that Jesus um, made at the wedding was the good wine in Greek, the ton kalon. Now, people then say because it was the good wine that therefore it was high in alcoholic content. But friends, the ancient Jews used to um, use a reconstituted syrup or grape juice and mix that into water and so after they've been having the additive the mixture for days which was called a dibs or debus type of wine jesus turns the water into the pure blood of the grape deuteronomy uh, uh, 14 uh, 21 i think and so there jesus is very clearly giving uh, the pure blood of the grape and so the good wine was given to them because it was pure and it wasn't alcoholic 
Friends, I'd like to give you a reason for this. Rabbi S.M. Isaac in the Jewish Messenger wrote, the Jews do not in their feast for sacred purposes, including the marriage feast, ever use any kind of fermented drinks. You see, the Jews have everything as symbolic. The Old Testament sanctuary represents the sanctuary in heaven. And so if you go to a Jewish wedding and they use fermented alcohol, that is symbolic of the bride and groom coming together and shows that the union will become fermented and will break down and decay and the marriage will not last. And so the Jews do not in their feast for sacred purposes, including the marriage feast, ever use any kind of fermented drinks. And that was the ancient practice. You've got to ask yourself, can Jesus turn all of this 160 gallons of water into intoxicating wine and therefore lead men, women and children into sin? It was the spirit of Christ in the Old Testament in Habakkuk 2.15 that says, Woe unto him that putteth his bottle to his neighbor's lips and causeth him to be drunken, that he might look upon his nakedness. Wow, that's a lot to take in there. There's alcohol, there's sexual immorality, there's lusting. Friends, would Jesus Christ have produced up to 160 gallons of intoxicating wine? for the use of men, women, and children, and then being responsible for their sins? Absolutely not. The wine which Christ provided for the feast and that which he gave to the disciples as a symbol of his own blood was the pure juice of the grape. To this, the prophet Isaiah refers when he speaks of the new wine in the cluster and says in Isaiah 65, 8, destroy it not, for a blessing is in it. The unfermented wine which he provided for the wedding guests was a wholesome and refreshing drink. Its effect was to bring the taste into harmony with a healthful appetite. Friends, the good wine that Christ miraculously produced at Cana was always the unfermented grape juice. And also remember that Jesus was totally consistent with that principle when he died on the cross. If you'd like extra, extra information on this and a deeper study on uh, wine in the Bible, then please contact me for that material. I'll be happy to share it. Question 10, what does alcohol do to the brain? Every time a person takes a few drinks of an alcoholic beverage, even a few beers or cocktails at a social function, he prematurely damages his brain by cutting off the oxygen supply to enormous numbers of small areas of brain tissue thereby killing large numbers of brain cells prematurely. There's only one way to be safe from the dangers of alcohol, and that is to quit it cold. That's Dr. Melvin Nisley. Friends, alcohol kills brain cells and beclouds the mind. The first brain cells it kills are those affecting the frontal lobe, which are the places of willpower, reason, and judgment. No wonder God says that those who are kings of Jesus Christ will not touch alcoholic beverages. The Christian realized that even a few beers or cocktails can permanently damage his brain and affect his spiritual judgment. God wants us to have clear minds for the closing scenes of Earth's history. For further information on alcohol, see Exhibit 2. So we've provided an exhibit tonight that goes with the lesson. This is Exhibit 2 on alcohol. And rather than reading those two paragraphs, let me describe it on the screen. Friends, drinking alcohol can definitely impair your cognitive powers 
even on the next day after drinking alcohol. So I've seen on the random breath testing program put out by the police that they pull people over and a lady's just had a glass of wine with her girlfriends at a restaurant or maybe a glass of wine and a half and finds miraculously that she is somehow over the limit because the alcohol has deceived her. Then the gentleman driving the next day after a big night watching the footy with the boys is pulled over by the cops and he is over because the alcohol is still in his system. Baseline memory tests show that even moderate drinking of alcohol can cause serious memory loss. I don't think any of us will dispute that. People testify readily, don't they? I can't remember what happened last night. I don't know where I was, I don't know who I was with, and I don't know how I ended up in that situation and where I spent the night. Let's go to question 11. We switch from the question of alcohol across to the foods that Daniel was refusing in Babylon. What foods did God forbid his ancient people Israel to eat? We go to Leviticus 11. Let's pick it up in verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying to them, I want you to remember that, who was speaking Aaron, who was giving these commands. So the Lord spoke and said, speak to the children of Israel saying, these are the animals which you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Here is the gold class principle, the gold class rule. The animal must divide the hoof, having cloven hoofs, and chew the cud. That's the one you may eat. Often it's described as having a split hoof. Nevertheless, these you shall not eat among those that chew the cud. Here's a rule. We've got the rule, but there are some exceptions. Nevertheless, these you shall not eat among those that chew the cud or those that have cloven hooves, and that is the camel. Because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hoofs. He is unclean unto you. So friends, I'm sure not too many of you are lusting after a camel burger for lunch or on the weekend. But if you'd been in the desert starving for food or hankering for food like the Israelites were for 40 years, I'm sure at some stage a camel might have looked good. Camels are pretty foul. They spew up green stuff from the front. They're certainly not pretty from the back. And I want to tell you tonight that God is warming, warning his ancient people don't to take any camel burgers. Then he warns against the rock hyrax. The rock hyrax was kind of like a coney or a rock badger. Why? Because it chewed the cud but did not have cloven hooves and he is unclean to you. Both the camel, the rock hyrax and the hare are coprophages. That means they're animals who eat their own waste to set up fermentation in the digestive system. There's another good reason why we shouldn't eat these animals. So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron to share with his people, don't eat the hare or the rabbit because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hoofs. He is unclean to you. And the swine, though it divides the hoof, having cloven hoofs, yet it does not chew the cud and he is unclean to you. Their flesh you shall not eat and their carcasses you shall not touch. They are unclean to you. Friends, God's word is unequivocal here. What foods did God forbid his ancient people Israel to eat? He forbade them to eat the unclean animals. 
Now, friends, if this doesn't sit right with you because you think these are the old Jewish food laws, you have to ask yourself very clearly and logically, what food did God give Adam and Eve in the garden? And you'll find out that there was no flesh foods ever given in the original Genesis diet. Obviously, Daniel would have encountered unclean foods on the king's table, therefore he didn't eat them. While most of us today would never think of eating roasted rat, many people today eat some of the foods mentioned by God as unclean, such as the rabbit and the pig. Friends, I want you to remember tonight that God doesn't want us to eat his living rubbish bins. So he set up pigs, hyenas, sharks, vultures, and certain seafood to be his cleaning agents. Remember what you and I eat today walks and talks tomorrow what other foods did god say were unclean in leviticus 11 9 and 10 there were laws for fish these you may eat of all that are in the waters whatever in the water has fins and scales whether it's in the sea or in the rivers that you may eat there is the gold standard rule it must have fins and scales but all in the seas or in the rivers that do not have fins and scales all that move in the water or any living thing which is in the water they are an abomination to you they shall be an abomination to you. You shall not eat their flesh. You shall regard their carcasses as an abomination, meaning a hateful thing, a detestable thing. Whatever in the water does not have fins or scales, that shall be an abomination to you. So, friends, in terms of fish, you need to remember when you're ordering your fish and chips that you don't go and eat Sammy the shark. Because although he has fins, he does not actually have scales. And a lot of people are surprised to find this. Sharks have like a leathery covering on their skin, but they do not have scales. They're God's rubbish bins, and they do a great job of cleaning up a lot of the carcasses in the sea. What other foods did God say were unclean? It was fish that did not have fins and scales. This eliminated from the diet such things as clams, oysters, shrimp, lobster, crab, eel, catfish, etc. These are actually, and we don't like hearing it, God's vacuum cleaners of the ocean and of the seas. They're actually the scum suckers, and some of you would know that oysters often poison people because of the high levels of contaminants and sewage that are retained in their systems. So I remember a friend that I had a number of years ago. He had very high cholesterol, and we were in a cray boat fishing town, big seafood town on the water. And my friend told me, the doctor asked him, Ray, do you eat craze, shellfish or lobster? And Ray was like, no, I don't touch them. I follow the Genesis diet. The doctor said, oh, well, that's good because your cholesterol's really high. And uh, if you are going to be eating seafood, it's going to tip you over the edge and you could have a heart attack. So friends, I think God gives us good reasons on what to eat and what not to eat. When you buy a new car, you especially don't want to put the wrong fuel in especially if you buy a new diesel and then you put petrol in it. That really causes a lot of distress. And I know that firsthand. Well, there's some laws for birds here, Leviticus 11, 13 to 19. God says, and these you shall regard as an abomination among the birds. They shall not be eaten. And he lists there the eagle, vulture, buzzard, kite, falcon, raven, etc., etc., etc. And so the Food laws for birds are very clear. So we've got to ask now because people say, well, these are the old Jewish food laws that were done away with at the cross. Wait a minute. Who gave them? Moses? No, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying to them, speak to the children of Israel 
God's people, these are the animals which you may eat among the animals that are on the earth. Why have food laws? Deuteronomy 14, 1 and 2. God says, you are the children of the Lord your God, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God's people are supposed to be the healthiest and the most radiant. Well, some of you might be saying, well, what meat can we eat? It's very clear in Deuteronomy 14, 3 to 6, not to eat any detestable animal, but these are the animals which you can eat. Excuse me. So people can eat the ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roe deer, the wild goat, the mountain goat, the antelope and the mountain sheep. And you may eat every animal with cloven hooves that has a split hoof into two parts that chews the cud among the animals. So let's go on now to question 13. Why did God prohibit the eating of pork, shellfish and other unclean foods? Well, friends, I want to uh, just read the note. God does not tell us the reason why he prohibited his ancient people from eating these foods. Well, I'm going to stop there and say, I think I can give you a reason. It says God doesn't tell us exactly the reason why he prohibited his ancient people from eating these foods. Let's go to Exodus 15, 26. And I think that God does give a bit of a reason here. He said to the children of Israel, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you, which I brought on the Egyptians. And I love the next part of this verse. For I am the Lord that does what? Is he the Lord that curses us and sends illness and sickness to us? Or is he the Lord who heals us? Absolutely, the Lord who heals us. Well, why was he referring to the diseases of ancient Egypt? Friends, the ancient Egyptians were no different to us. They suffered cancer and atherosclerosis, the hardening of the arteries, heart disease. They suffered stress, tooth decay and obesity. And so here we're asking, why did God give us the food laws? Because God's people were to be a holy people. They were to be the healthiest, a special people, a special treasure, a people who would represent the God of heaven through radiant health. So why did God prohibit his ancient people from eating unclean meats? Firstly, the first reason was a physical reason, to preserve their health from the diseases associated with eating those unclean meats. So remember those unclean meats, they were dead. They had disease in them. They were animals that had a face. Friends, there's a second reason, and that is holiness. God's people are to be a holy people and a peculiar or distinctive and special people who stand out because of their radiant health. Like Daniel and his three friends, after 10 days, we are to be radiant with health more than the other peoples on the earth because we are following God's Genesis diet. We're following the Daniel diet. And of course, once we follow that diet, God can give extra blessings as we live and witness for him. Well, I remember a farmer uh, telling me a few years ago that he was on the farm. And uh, I remember visiting him in hospital where he asked me the question, Pastor, why has God given me cancer? And I said, what? He said, Pastor, you asked answer the question, why did God give me cancer? And I said, well, no, God hasn't given you cancer. I said, that's the work of the evil one and also lifestyle choices. Can I ask you what your diet is? Are you on green food? And he said, well, a little bit. 
you know, we um, we we follow the biblical diet, sort of. We we uh, eat the clean meats, and here on the farm, I only kill my own. I kill the best of the cuts, and we can control the the meat that we're eating. So we're eating the best. You know, friends, you won't believe this, but three months later, I buried that guy. He died from cancer, and yet he was telling me that. Um, he was eating the choicest cuts of meat. And I just want to remind you today that even eating clean meat today is not a guarantee of safety. I'm going back to the note under 13. Please look at the screen. However, modern medical science has helped us understand some of the reasons why God saw that these foods were not fit for human consumption. The purpose of these animals on the earth was not to be a part of the food chain for people, but to be his garbage collectors. The pig was to be the garbage collector of the earth, while the shellfish was to be the garbage collector of the ocean. Did you know pork is one of the worst carriers of the trichina worm? And that leads to trichinosis. Likewise, pork is very high in cholesterol. Most fish do not contain much cholesterol. However, shellfish contain as much cholesterol as pork sausage. No wonder God said to leave it alone. That's one of the reasons if a physician removes pork from a heart patient's diet, as soon as it's discovered there's any kind of heart problem. How much better it would be not to have our arteries clogged in the beginning. That's why God said not to eat these foods. For further information on medical research on pork and shellfish, see Exhibit 2. So there's our exhibit on the screen, and I'm going to share just with you just a few thoughts from here while you watch the visual feed and I explain it. In Japan, Hyarama, it found they found that the intakes of pork and fat were associated with mortality from breast cancer. In 12 different prefectures, that was reported in diet, nutrition and cancer. Then in another study called McLennan et al, they evaluated the diets consumed by adult men from Kuopio, Finland, and compared them with the diets consumed by a similar sample from Copenhagen, Denmark, where the incidence of colon cancer was four times higher. They found that the high incidence group consumed more refined wheat breads, meats, and especially pork and beer, but less potatoes and milk than did the low incidence group in Finland. Well, what about shellfish? In the first stage of nerve action, there's a massive flow of ions through channels in the walls of a nerve cell into the body of the cell itself. It was found that saxitocin, ingredients found in shellfish, that somehow clogs these channels and prevents the iron transfer from happening. Without the transfer, the cells fail to fire and paralysis occurs. Now, many of you know that seafood is dangerous. In 88, nearly 300,000 Chinese in Shanghai developed hepatitis A from the clams. I want to go now to a scientific study. It's a scientific appreciation of Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14 by Dr. David I. Mark USA. This is actually on the internet and you can pull it down as a PDF and have a look at the figures yourself. So he did a study where they took muscle extracts from the clean animals from these two chapters and they were analyzed and found to have non-toxic properties and they grew uh, lupinous seedlings in the meat and then they studied it. Secondly, 
It was a study of muscle extracts from the unclean animals described in Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14, were analyzed and found to have toxic properties for the growth of lupinous seedlings. And the above scientific experiments covered the four specifically prohibited meats in the Bible, coney, camel, hare and hog, plus over 54 species of fish and seafood and birds. Those condemned as an abomination by God, surprise, surprise, no surprise at all, were found to be highly toxic. Let's have a look at that very quickly. This is the photo toxic index of various animals in this study. A high score of 100% means it is less poisonous. So God recommended sheep, ox, goat, deer, and calf. But see at the bottom of the first column, on the left, we have pigs rated at 54%. On the right-hand column, halfway down, the rabbit and hare is 49%. The coney or guinea pig or rock badger is 46%, and certainly don't go near that camel at 41%. What about the fish? Well, you can see there that uh, there's bass, herring, mackerel, salmon, cod, tuna, whiting, rainbow trout, etc. but don't go near shark, porcupine fish, rays, puffers, catfish and eel. These are really, really poisonous. And in terms of the birds, you've got pigeons, ducks, quail, remember the quail in the Old Testament, um, right through to turkey, wild duck and chicken. Interesting how low chicken is and today very diseased with pesticides, etc. And then you go down into the definitely unclean birds. This is a statement that's always challenged me. Animals are becoming more and more diseased and it will not be long until animal food will be discarded by many. Foods that are healthful and life-sustaining to be prepared so that men and women will not need to eat meat. The Lord will teach many in all parts of the world to combine fruits, grains and vegetables into the foods that will sustain life and will not bring disease. Does anyone know what the original Genesis diet was in Genesis 1.29? Would you be surprised to know? It's fruits, nuts and grains. We're on question 14 at the bottom of page four and up to the top of page five. Well, what kind of diet did Daniel ask to receive? I think you have a good idea, won't you, Daniel 1.12? He said, please test your servants for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Friends, you and I are told to drink eight glasses of water today, but I see people drinking tea and coffee during the day, um, soft drinks, fruit juice. The poor old body is trying to get some pure, clear water to drink to flush the system of all the impurities and toxins. And some people don't drink at all. And this causes their wastewater to be an absolutely bright orange in color. You know, the New International Version translates this verse as, this verse as, give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. This is what Daniel requests. So Daniel requests a vegetarian diet. This was more than God required, for God had only prohibited the eating of the unclean animals. He'd allowed people to eat the flesh of clean animals. But when Daniel got to this time of extreme test, and I believe we're in it now, he went on a very simple vegetarian diet because he knew that his mind must be as sharp and clear as possible in order to face the crises ahead. Well, originally God gave a vegetarian diet to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 1.29. We could actually say it was a vegan or plant-based diet. There was no meat and no dairy. Today we're approaching the crisis of the last days. 
Perhaps it would be a good idea for us to return to God's original diet so that our minds might be clear to face the crisis at the close of time. Certainly, we should begin by leaving off those foods that God has expressly commanded us not to eat, namely pork, shellfish, and other unclean foods mentioned in Scripture. So, friends, let's summarize. There are three diets in the Bible, fruits, nuts, grains, and vegetables. One is ideal. The second one is the clean meats, and that is called acceptable. Not ideal, but acceptable. And then the third one is actually unacceptable. So, friends, I think Scripture is very, very clear. And it's interesting that as we draw near this greener environment and a more sustainable uh, traverse of planet Earth existence here, that it's interesting that it looks like meat is going to be phased out in this great reset. Question 15, what event does God first mention unclean animals in Genesis 7, 1 and 2? Then the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark, you and all your household, because I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Noah, you shall take with you seven of each of every clean animal, a male and his female, and two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female. So friends, when did this take place? This took place at the time of the flood. Now, do you notice here Noah arguing the Lord, um, what, clean, unclean, what do you mean, Lord? No, they knew from ancient times that there was fruits, nuts, grains, and vegetables. And so the animals were already specified as being clean and unclean. The distinction between clean and unclean animals did not originate at Sinai with the children of Israel, but the distinction was known before the flood as well. Well, people have asked why so many clean animals went on the ark. There were seven pairs of clean, a male and his female, making 14. There were two pairs of unclean, making up four unclean animals on the ark. Why more clean than unclean? Very simply for two reasons. Number one, the clean animals would be used to sacrifice to the Lord after they got off the ark. And secondly, the clean animals would be used as a food source with no vegetation on the earth. So two reasons, sacrifice and food. That then accounts for the extra pairs of clean. We're on question 16, moving towards halfway down page six. What will happen to people using unclean foods at the second coming of Christ? This is a pretty challenging verse because it mixes together uh, unclean foods with idolatry. Isaiah wrote, those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens after a what? He says, after an idol in the midst. So here we have idolatry. They're up there on the mountains. They're eating swine's flesh and these pagan rituals in their idolatry. And they're eating the abomination, which would have been other unclean foods. And the mouse, God says, they shall be consumed together, says the Lord. So those who damage the body temple will be destroyed, as it says in 1 Corinthians. What will happen to people using unclean foods at the second coming of Christ? Those who are sanctifying themselves, going to the gardens after idolatry, eating swine's flesh. Other unclean foods the Bible condemns and the mouse shall be consumed together, says the Lord. This refers to their wicked being destroyed at the second coming of Christ. That's what it refers to. 
Um, so that's very, very serious, isn't it? I have an extra text that's not in your lesson. And I'd like you to write in, if you have your pen handy, Isaiah 65, two to four, it's on the screen. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people, God says, who walk in a way that is not good. According to their own thoughts of people who provoke me to anger, continually to my face, who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves and spend the night in the tombs, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of abominable things is in their vessels. Those who claim to be in a saved, sanctified relationship with Christ, knowing that God does not want them to eat the unclean foods, yet still persist in eating them, will be destroyed at his second coming. Obviously, God does not intend for his last day people to eat these foods. So friends, in spite of the clear indication of scripture that these foods are not to be eaten by Christians, some people have suggested that it's all right for Christians to eat them today. And they've even quoted a few texts to support the theory. For an explanation of these texts, please see Exhibit 1. So we go to the front cover of Exhibit 1 for Lesson 19. I'm going to read if you would like to watch the visual feed on the screen. Many individuals have quoted from Peter's vision in Acts 10 in an attempt to prove that it is all right for New Testament Christians to eat the unclean foods. Here is a prime example of how a text can be lifted out of its context and made to teach something the original writer never had in mind. Let's go to the vision. It's Acts 10 verses 9 to 17. I quote the scripture. On the morrow, as they went on their journey and drew nigh unto the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. And he became very hungry and would have eaten. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven open and a certain vessel descending upon him as it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners and let down to the earth, wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts on the earth and wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Friends, here's Peter's testimony that the food laws were not done away with at the cross of Jesus Christ. How do we know? Peter's just said, Lord, I have never eaten anything common or unclean. He has not gone against the food laws that God gave in his word. And the voice spake unto him the second time, what God has cleansed, that call, that call not thou common. This was done three times, and the vessel was received up again into heaven, the sheep. Now, while Peter doubted in himself what this vision which he'd seen should mean, behold, the men which were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. Friends, what's this all about? Well, most interpreters read the vision this far, stop and devise their interpretation for the vision. But such is only man's interpretation. How much better to let the Bible explain itself. Whilst Peter did not know exactly what it meant, one thing he did know, and that was what it didn't mean. And that was it's now all right to eat the unclean foods that have previously been forbidden in the Old Testament. Friends, 
However, God did not want the Christian church to be restrictive. He did not want them to think that salvation was only for the Jews, that all other people and nations were unclean and therefore could not have the gospel of salvation brought to them. Thus, God chose to give Peter this vision to teach people the great lesson that no person, neither Jew nor Gentile, should be considered unclean. Notice how the force of the vision comes to Peter in verse 28. Then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with one or go to one of another nation. In other words, a non-Jew is a Gentile. You're not to go into Gentiles' houses. But God has shown me that I should not call any beast common or unclean. That's what people are using this passage for. They're saying that there's no more unclean beasts. Is that what the scripture is saying here? Let's not add to the scripture. Let's not take away from the scripture. Let's just read the scripture as it is. But God has shown me, Peter says, that I should not call any man common or unclean. Verse 34, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation, the Gentiles, other words, who fear him and do what is right. So, friends, God is trying to break down racist attitudes between Jews and Gentiles. And kind of part of the kicker in this story is the Jews actually called the Gentiles dumb animals behind their back. So it does have that animal flavor in it. Well, we are about to look at four so-called texts that refute the uh, Bible's biblical diet. Before we go to those, let's just be very clear on how the biblical diet panned out. Let's go to six clear texts. In Genesis 1.29, Adam and Eve are given fruits, nuts, and grains in the Garden of Eden. After they sin in Genesis 3.18, vegetables is added to the diet because they are no longer just walking around plucking fruit off the trees. They're working in the sweat of their brow to produce food out of the land that's bringing up thorns and thistles. So vegetables are added to add carbohydrate to the diet. In Genesis 7, 1 and 2, after the time of the flood, the meats that are clean are actually added to the diet as an emergency diet. I think the emergency is still on for some people. They're still eating the emergency diet. And so the clean and unclean meats are there highlighted. In Leviticus 3.17, the blood is not to be eaten in meat, even in clean animals. It has to be drained out and be kasha or kosher. And so blood and fat were to be forbidden. And I'd like you to think about the fats that people are eating today in our society. In Leviticus 11, the unclean meats are very clearly listed. We had a look at them, the rule for what to eat, and also the ones that didn't meet the rules. And then in Deuteronomy 14, we have the clean meats listed, which I've actually read to you already. So let's have a look at these four disputed texts and the recommended biblical diet. Is it really a conflict? Well, we've already looked at the first one, Acts 10.28, and I won't go through it again that I should not call any man common or, common or unclean. It's not referring to beasts. It's a discussion on Jews accepting Gentiles and sharing with them the gospel. Well, let's have a look at what the second text is. All right, we go to 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 5. Here's a text that many have misunderstood or at worst tried to twist. Paul wrote to Timothy, for every creature is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving, for it's sanctified by the word of God and prayer. 
So people have got excited by this and they've attempted to justify the usage of unclean foods. They quote this text as far as verse four and then conclude it's all right to eat anything as long as we thank the Lord for it. But does that mean it's all right to eat roasted cat and fried bat or even rat? Friends, obviously not. Let's understand very clearly what's going on here. This is the inevitable conclusion of such an interpretation if it's held. But notice the very last verse here, verse five. Here we're told what creatures may be eaten with thanksgiving, namely, see it right there? Namely, those that the word of God sanctifies, the word of God approves or specifies can be eaten. So we read verse five, for every creature is good and nothing to be refused if it's sanctified by the word of God. All right, that's very, very important. So does the word of God sanctify the usage of unclean foods such as pork and shellfish? Absolutely not. That's why this text cannot be used to support the eating of unclean food. And let me add a note at the bottom of the screen. Prayer can never change the nature of unclean food. Only the word of God can approve it as being fit to eat. I'm gonna give you an illustration of that. I understand that John Wesley, the great missionary evangelist in England was at someone's home for lunch and the owner brought out the lunch. And I illustrated here, a magnificent hog with an apple in its mouth. And then the uh, owner of the manor said to Reverend Wesley, preacher, would you say the blessing for us? And poor old John Wesley, he was just really put on the spot because he knew what God's word said. And this is what he prayed. Dear Lord, if thou canst bless what thou hast cursed, please bless it. Amen. Friends, I'll make the point again. Prayer cannot change the nature of unclean food. Only the word of God can approve of it as being fit to eat. Well, the third text is a section of text from Mark 7, 15 to 20. The context here is the, the Jewish ceremonial hand washings without which any food was regarded as an unclean. So in ancient times, if you picked up some bread and you hadn't done the special washings that the Jews had specified, then that food became unclean. It wasn't even always regarding meat. So friends, the actual type of food was not even mentioned because meat foods were not even under discussion. So have a look in Mark 7 and have a look at verse 8, verses 3 to 14. And I think that becomes very, very clear that meat and unclean meat is not even being discussed. It's about the ceremonial washings and not having your hands ceremonially clean before you partake of food. In Romans 14, 3, 6, 17 and 20, the context here is an argument over food offered to idols, whether it's clean or unclean. We're not to judge those who ate food that was cheaper due to being used in idol sacrifices. So some Jews were saying the Gentiles were buying food from the markets had been sacrificed to idols, therefore it was unclean. But it was ceremonially unclean. It wasn't unclean, unclean food that didn't meet the biblical food recommendations. So friends, the Old Testament clean and unclean animal rules were never an issue in the New Testament church. And just remember the cross of Jesus Christ cannot change the uncleanness of pigs or seafood. Jesus' death on the cross cannot change the reality of those. We're being warned against them. Why would we eat 
God's rubbish bins. He put these animals on the earth as scavengers to clean up the mess. And what a blessing it is that they do such a good job. All right, we're on our third heading now. We're looking at the diet test today. So we're now going to apply what we've learned to ourselves today. Only Daniel and his friends passed the food test in this time of prosperity. Likewise, only Daniel and his friends passed the severe test that came in time of adversity. And when the really big test came, such as the fiery furnace, the only ones who passed that great test of utmost loyalty to God were those who first of all passed the food test. The small test on food enabled Daniel and his friends to stand firm in more important areas. Don't miss the point. Those who failed the food test then failed the test on the image. Those who passed the diet test passed the test on the worship of the image. Since the book of Daniel has so many implications for the last days, God may be preparing his last day people for the final test on the image of the beast. We discussed that in lesson five. And first of all, God begins this test. Can anyone imagine where he begins the test? He begins testing his people in the area of food and what they put in their bodies. Is it healthy? Is it clean? Is it a blessing? The diet test today in question 17 at the bottom of page six. Well, what was the first test given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? We go back to Genesis 3 and verses 1 to 6. Now, the serpent was more cunning. He was more crafty. He was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now notice those words, nor shall you touch it. They are not God's words. She's added that in by implication. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. It's a direct contradiction of what God said. Eat of the tree, you'll die. You will not surely die, for God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, point number one. You will be like God, point number two. You will know good and evil, point number three. The subtle serpent offers Eve three irresistible offers. Number one, enlightenment to rise up to God's level of wisdom. Number two, equality with God's power. Number three, equality with God's knowledge. So we have there omniscience and omnipotence um, these are the character and quality of god in verse six so when the woman saw the tree was good for food it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise she took of its fruit and ate she also gave to her husband with her and he ate friends what's the test that's going on here what's the very first test over number one yeah it's not just the fruit in the tree it's whether adam and eve trusted god's word whether they trusted it, whether they would obey it, and whether they would keep control of their appetite. And on those three areas, Adam and Eve failed. What was the first test given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? They were asked not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Sin entered this planet because man ate that which God had forbidden. First great test came on the food question and Adam and Eve failed. Do you remember the four great food tests in scripture? 
There's the one we've just looked at, Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 with the fruit. There's Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, the unclean meat and alcoholic wine in Daniel 1. There's Jesus Christ's temptation with bread in Matthew 4 with Lucifer, the devil. And there's Peter and the unclean meats in the sheep that we spoke about in Acts 10 and 11. So with Adam and Eve, how did they go on the food test? The greatest of all tests, the first of all tests, the answer is failure. How did Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah go in Babylon? They passed with flying colours. How did Jesus go? The second Adam turned around the defeat of the first Adam. Have a look in Romans chapter 5. Verse 12, Jesus overcame where Adam fell. And then finally, Peter held the line and said, Lord, I've never eaten any food which is common or unclean. Even since the cross of Jesus Christ, he hadn't gone wild on unclean food. Well, all these points make sense, don't they? They're logical. So what was the first test that Christ faced in the wilderness of temptation in Matthew 4, 1 to 4? When Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, he was hungry. I think the Bible has an understatement there, doesn't it? Now, when the tempter came to Jesus, he said, if you are the son of God, command these stones become bread. But Jesus answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. Are you living today by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God that we read in his word? Friends, the first test that Christ faced in the wilderness is the diet test. What are you putting into your body? Is it clean or unclean? You know, when people go to a plant-based diet, when they go to a vegan diet, I don't like the word vegan, it's a dirty word, but when people go to a plant-based diet, they're thinking every day about what they're putting in their bodies. Is it helpful? Is it nutritious? Is it sustainable? Will it be a blessing? So sin entered this planet because man, sorry, the first great temptation our Lord faced in the wilderness was on appetite. Jesus must gain the victory at the very same place that Adam fell. The same victory that Christ gained, he offers to every believer today through the power of his indwelling spirit. Victory over depraved appetite is available to the Christian today because of Christ's victory in the wilderness of temptation. Friends, I've often wondered, this is a, a picture from the movie Jesus of Nazareth, a marvellous movie on the life of Christ. I've often wondered if Lucifer, Satan, the devil coming as an angel of light, whether he allowed the freshly baked bread smell to waft over Jesus Christ to make him want to turn those stones into bread. Have you ever got a whiff of freshly baked bread? It's almost irresistible, isn't it? Question 19. How are Christians today to glorify God in 1 Corinthians 10.31? Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Friends, in our eating and drinking, do we rightly glorify and represent God? Are Christians to be the ones at Christmas parties up on the table drinking and uh, engaging in gluttony? Is that how we glorify God and uh, show who we follow and who we believe in? Christians today are to bring glory to God by choosing to follow his directions regarding appetite. Well, what is the temple of the Holy Ghost for Christians? We go to 1 Corinthians 6.19. Paul says to the church in Corinth, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, 
and you are not your own. Have you ever thought about your body being the residing place, the temple, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit? God, through the Holy Spirit, dwells in Christians who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Their bodies now belong to God. They're temples for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I remember once having a Bible study on this topic, and a young lady said to me, yeah, I get it. It's kind of like, hmm, rent a body, isn't it? God rents us a body, and we need to hand it back in good condition because the Holy Spirit doesn't want to live in a tip. You know, I've never forgot what she said because I thought it was a brilliant illustration of what God requires from last-day Christians, his people. What should Christians do who've been brought with the price of Calvary? In 1 Corinthians 6.20, this is uh, amazing. For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirits, which are God's. They belong to God. And so there's our answer to glorify God in our body. We are to be radiant examples of the glory of God. Christians must also re always remember their bodies do not belong to them because they've been purchased by the blood of Calvary. Therefore, their eating, their drinking, and everything they do will glorify God and they will pass the appetite test. Question 22, what are some habits that born-again Christians should leave alone? Well, one that I think that some people struggle with would be smoking. There's also vaping today, smoking cigarettes, smoking cigars, and vaping. Recognizing their bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, born-again Christians will not smoke. Smoking causes things like cancer, heart disease, and a host of other problems you can see on the screen. It clogs the mind and prevents clear thinking. Since our bodies belong to Jesus Christ and are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, Christians realize that putting a cigarette in one's mouth is actually placing it in the mouth of Jesus Christ. How can Christians do that and glorify God? I now want to share with you six benefits about quitting smoking. Firstly, your lungs improve and the following things stop. Irritation, inflammation, congestion, dripping mucus, and of course, the most debilitating in the short term, the outward thing is the shortness of breath. Quitters always win and winners never quit. By the grace of God, we can overcome all things in Jesus Christ who loves us. Friends, tonight, God is telling you that he loves you. He will give you power to do this. Once you say, yes, I'm going to follow God's word, God gives you the power. You cannot do it on your own. I will testify to that. I could not change my diet on my own. And at the end of 2019, I made a desire, I made a, a strong decision to go to a plant-based diet and made a huge change in my diet. I was vegetarian, but I went to a plant-based diet, got rid of all the meat and dairy in my life, my precious fish, the Lord helped me to give it up, and uh, my iced coffees and other things. So I want to tell you that God can give you a mighty victory. And I want to tell you that since I made that decision, that I have had a closer walk with Jesus, and I'm a lot more sensitive to sin in my life because of the pure food that I'm putting in my body. Praise God. Well, the second area we spoke about tonight was we need to be careful. We need to avoid using alcoholic beverages. Like Daniel, Christians will purpose in their hearts not to defile themselves with the king's wine. They'll recognize they belong to the king of kings, and as kings, they will not touch alcohol and pervert their judgment and forget God's law. Here's a text that wasn't in the lesson you might like to jot down, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. 
Do you not know that the unrighteous, meaning the wicked, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. And then Paul goes through a whole list of sinners. But verse 10, he says, this group of people will not be in heaven. Who does he, who does he name? Nor drunkards will inherit the kingdom of God. Friends, I've got to ask the question, why won't there be any drunks in heaven? Friends, how do you avoid becoming a drunk? The most important thing is you don't take the first drink. And remember the AA motto, when one drink is too many and a thousand drinks is not enough or a thousand drinks is never enough. Friends, I think there's some really, really good advice there that we remember there'll be no drunkards in heaven. There'll be many people who were drunkards. There'll be many people in heaven who'll be alcoholics because Jesus gave them the power in their life to overcome. What are some habits a born-again Christian should leave alone? Also, eating unclean foods. Like Daniel, Christians will purpose in their hearts not to eat the king's meat, for it is out of harmony with the word of God. And as they face earth's final crisis they will seek to bring their dietary habits into harmony with the original edenic diet they'll begin leaving off unclean foods such as pork and shellfish some of you might remember a few years ago we had this mad cow disease a mad cow disease epidemic it was called bovine spongy form encephalitis and i think at that time the cow union came together and advised everybody to eat more chicken that's just a little humor in a pretty serious lesson. Well, what are some habits that born-again Christians should leave alone? How about tea, coffee, and caffeinated drinks? Why is that? Let me just give you a little bit of information from Exhibit 2 in the lesson guide. While it, caffeine, stimulates and leaves the brain more fatigued after its action is over, and we have caffeine, of course, in uh, lots of cola drinks and energy drinks in high amounts, while caffeine stimulates, it leaves the brain more fatigued after its action is over. It can do nothing but cause general nerve and brain fatigue unless adequate sweet sleep is obtained. And then it talks about coffee being a breakfast, breakfast tradition. The morning cup of coffee, even in our country here, may pose some dire hazards of its own. Coffee has, in fact, for some time been suspected as being a promoter of heart disease. And now in the British journal Lancet, a Harvard researcher reports it may also be linked to cancer of the bladder. I would like to tell you a fascinating little story as we're closing about the orbweb spider. A scientist was studying the spider and this spider would build his web at the coldest, darkest part of the night. And so the scientist wondered if he gave the, the, if he gave the spider some coffee, whether the spider might change the time that he built the web. And so he gave a spider two cups of coffee, which is pretty hard to get a spider to drink coffee. So he injected a fly with the equivalent of two cups of coffee. He threw the fly into the web and the spider sucked the fly dry. Now the spider still made his web at the coldest, darkest part of the night, but the web was highly distorted. It was kind of like a bow tie shape and it inhibited the spider's web building ability. It took 48 hours for the spider to rebuild his orb web. So what's the point of the story? I think it's really quite obvious, isn't it? That spiders shouldn't drink coffee. So maybe you and I shouldn't either. Just want to summarize where we've been tonight. 
The Eden diet for Adam and Eve was grains, fruits and nuts. Then came the fall into sin and God had to add vegetables to bring carbohydrates in. After the flood, there's no food as they come off the ark. So God allows the eating of clean meats, but they have to be drained and they have to be bloodless with no blood and no fat eaten. Then we learned about the foods that God specifically condemned, the unclean foods, the pigs, the rabbits and hares, seafood, shellfish and sharks. We learned that God had clean meats that could be eaten, anything to do with cows and ox and sheep, goats, deer, chicken and of course fish. Just before we close, I'd like to give you a biblical testimony on does the Genesis diet work. Here in Genesis 5, verses 5 to 32, we have the chronology of the ages of the patriarchs. Notice Adam, Seth, Enos, Canaan, and Mahalalel. So let's have a look at man's lifespan before the flood. Adam lived 930, Seth 912, Enos 905, Canaan 910. Then we have Mahalalel at 895 and Jared at 962, Methuselah at 969, Lamech at 777, Noah at 950. We add them all up. We get 8,210 years. We divide it by nine and we end up with 912.22 years. That's the average age of those on the meatless diet. That's the average age of those on a plant-based or vegan diet. Now, some people don't believe those ages, but you have to remember that God created Adam and Eve strong and healthy to live thousands of years. Well, what happens by Genesis 11 after the flood? Something's changed. Look at the lifespan. Noah, 950, Shem, 600, Arphaxad, Salah, Peleg, right down to David, who only lives three score and 10 or 70 years. Let's have a look at man's lifespan after the flood. 600, 438, 433, 239, 230, 148, 205, a total of about nine men divided into nearly 3,000 years gives us an average mean lifespan of 333 years. That's the average age of the clean meat eaters, not even those who are eating unclean. So, friends, what's going on here? Is there any proof that God's Eden diet in Genesis has any amazing advantages? Absolutely, yes. Before the flood, there's fruits, grains, nuts, and vegetables. These are the plant-based vegans who are living on average 912 years. After the flood, there's fruits, nuts, grains, and vegetables. These are the clean meat eaters. And notice here, man's lifespan is reduced by 63.5%. That's a huge drop through bringing in the eating of meat. And these were the clean meat eaters. So friends, you can see that the Bible testifies to the veracity of God's rules for eating. The creator knows what's best to put in your body. And then we had the scientific study by Dr. David Mack that we showed you before showing that the percentages of the animals match what God said in his word. So what are we reading here? What are we understanding here? We're understanding that the Eden diet was superior to the emergency diet, which was the clean meats and how it decimated the ages of the patriarchs. Well, should we all be vegetarians? Well, I'm going to leave that as something for you to work out. But remember what Daniel and his three friends ate? They ate vegetables and they drank water. What are some positive things Christians can do to improve their body temples? Well, born-again Christians who recognize their bodies are the temples of God will get plenty of rest, sunshine, fresh air, and water inside and out. They will avoid excessive amounts of sugar, 
and make sure they get sufficient exercise. Friends, here are eight top ingredients in a new start. Nutrition, exercise, water, sunshine, temperance, air, rest, and trust in God. Right now, many people are looking online for boosting their immunity in the health crisis that we're going through. They're wanting to boost their immunity. I suggest to you that fruits, nuts, grains, vegetables are most nutritious and the new start points on the screen will get you in a top position. Question 24, who came out better in ancient Babylon? Daniel and his friends with their healthful diet or those who ate the king's chunk food? All right, I think we know that Daniel and his three friends, they were found how many times better? They were found 10 times better. If you as a Christian want to be in better health, follow God's plan. Purpose in your heart not to defile yourself with the king's delicacies or which the wine Richie drank. Make certain that your mind is clear and sharp as you face the tumultuous events so soon to come upon planet Earth. Our last question tonight is your desire to bring glory to God in your own body by passing the health test now so you can have a clear mind for the final crisis. I hope that you're writing in there that, yes, that's the choice you're making tonight. Some resources for those of you who'd like to do further study. Um, these movies came out a few years ago. They're excellent, Super Size Me. Morgan Sporlock did an amazing uh, investigative report on what living on fast food was like and what it did to his body with the scientific backup. An amazing movie called Food Inc. You'll never look at dinner the same way is worthy of your time. Also, Forks Over Knives. Warning, this movie could save your life and uh, absolutely incredible nutritional information over there that it's important to go back to the original Edenic diet. So friends, what is the biblical diet? Simply fruits, nuts, grains, and vegetables. Why does God forbid certain types of food and drugs? Two main reasons. Number one, that you and I have better health. And number two, that our spiritual connection with God is holy. So there's a physical reason. There is a spiritual reason that we become the children of God. Why it's important to guard the mind and body against damage from unclean foods and harmful drugs. A sick body leads to a sick mind and our physical state certainly affects our spiritual life and hinders our communication with and sense of God. Well, thank you so much for uh, doing the quiz with us tonight. We have three response questions. If it's clear to you that God intends for his last day people to live healthy lives, I'm asking you to place a tick. Number two, if it's your desire to glorify God in your body by abstaining from alcohol, tobacco, pork, shellfish and caffeinated beverages, and by doing things that will give you a healthy body, then I'm asking you to place a tick in box number two. By the way, if you think you can, can't live without coffee, you certainly can. Once you get through the withdrawal pains of the headaches, you can get into a lifestyle where you are no longer a drug addict for caffeine. If you're having trouble with that, then ask God to give you a spiritual boost instead of a caffeine boost. And you'll be amazed how God can spark you up, wind you up. It's possible during work time to even just walk to the front door or walk around the building, go out and come back and just take a very quick break. It's exercise that we need. Number three, if you need extra information on any of these, please contact me for those resources I offered you tonight. We have five quiz questions tonight. Number one, Daniel and his friends chose not to eat the king's food and drink because doing so would result in them not having sharp minds to deal with the crises they might face in Babylon. They made the choice to not take the king's food and drink, true or false. 
Number two, only the people who passed the diet test in Daniel 1 passed the severe tests in Daniel 3 and 6. True or false? Number three, pork is not good for the Christian to eat because it builds up the cholesterol in their arteries and causes trichina infections, which are worms that can go through the whole system, as you saw in one of my slides tonight that I didn't read out to you so you wouldn't be grossed out. Number four, if a person has lung trouble, they should smoke. You know, friends, it's only a few years ago that the uh, cigarette companies in the 50s were saying that, you know, the cigarettes were good for health. That would improve your quality of life. Incredible, isn't it? Number five, Christians should try and live a healthy life by choosing to honour their bodies as the temple of God and by glorifying God in their bodies and in their lifestyles, true or false. Well, if you've got um, uh, four trues and one false, I think you've got the right answers tonight. Let's go through them quickly. Number one, the answer is true. Number two, the answer is true. Number three, the answer is true. Number four, the answer is false. And number five, the answer is true. The answers are true, 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 false, true. Give yourself a score out of five. Friends, tonight we have looked at Daniel chapter one. We've looked at the original biblical diet. And we've seen that it's, it is successful. It's successful spiritually. It's successful scientifically. And God has showed us that we can trust him and we can trust his word. I'm hoping that you'll take time to prepare lesson 20. Lesson 20 next night is what if Nebuchadnezzar were converted today? We're going to find out about biblical baptism. We're going to find out, does the Bible authorize baptizing infants? We're going to find out, is it necessary to be baptized to be saved? And what are new Christians to be baptized into? Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, tonight, Lord, we've covered one of the most controversial issues on planet Earth. That is what we put into our mouths, what we eat and what we drink. I pray, Father, tonight that no one will be upset or offended. I pray that they will sense the Holy Spirit say, this is the way, walk ye in it. Father, often we need power to overcome lifelong habits, things that we've done without thinking, things that we've done in ignorance and without knowledge. But when the Holy Spirit shines a light in our life and we see God's amazing truth to step up to health and happiness, and a better way. I ask that you will give these dear people tonight, wherever they are, wherever they're listening in, the power in their lives to overcome even that first great test in our lives, the test over appetite. I ask it in Jesus' powerful name. Let all the people say, Amen. been listening to Prophecy Seminar, the book of Daniel with Pastor David Price. For more information about this series, you can visit the YouTube page, True Blue SDA, all one word. That's True Blue SDA. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.